Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There were definitely students who were more talented than me, where in a first draft, they could make things happen that didn't happen for me until like the seventh draft. But the thing is, they didn't write a seventh. Hi, and welcome to Write Off, a podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London. Writing rejection has been a subject close to my heart ever since I didn't manage to sell my first book last year. If you're interested, you can hear a little bit more about that in the first episode in this series and in the trailer. My guest this week is Anne Napolitano, the author of three novels, including Dear Edward, the very moving story of a 12-year-old boy who is the lone survivor of a plane crash in which his parents and brother also die. It spent eight weeks on the New York Times bestseller list last year and the paperback is out now. It was not a straightforward path to success for Anne, though. She wanted to be a writer from the age of 10, but her first novel was rejected by 80 agents. And then her second got her an agent, but failed to sell to publishers. Anne was spectacularly honest about how depressing that was, and also really interesting on how raw talent isn't always the biggest part of the path to success as an author. So here's Anne. And I was a voracious reader as a child, which I think is often a sign. Um, and when I was in fourth grade uh, US date, so like 10 years old, um, you would get vocabulary assignments from the teacher. And you know, you basically get those from the time that you can write and read. Um, and this particular occasion, the teacher said, um, I want you to take this list of 10 vocabulary words and make them into sentences, but I want the sentences to connect. Like I wanted to tell a little scene or story or something like a paragraph. And that had never been part of the assignment before. So I went home to do it and I thought it took me like five minutes. And I looked up at the clock when I was done and it had taken 45 minutes. <laughs> and that like completely blew my mind because outside of playing, Time, I had never done anything where time disappeared like that. And I just, I had this like 
this moment where I was just like, this is magic. Like, this is like, this is like playing. It's like time disappears and I go someplace else and I want to do more of this. And so I started writing a novel like the next day, (laughs) you know, in the definition of a 10 year old's novel. And I think it was about a wartime orphan. And I wrote like 10 pages. And then like the next year I started a novel about a wartime nurse because apparently at that age, I was, I wanted to be a serious novelist. And I felt that you write, you wrote about war when you were a serious <laughs> novelist, even though I knew nothing about war and had no business writing about it. Um, so that really was the genesis. I'm, I was and am very shy. I mean, I was worse, way worse then. So I really didn't, it wasn't like I walked around telling people that I wanted to be a writer. But that was where it started building inside of me. When I chose a university, I had like two criteria. And one was that it had a creative writing program or a teacher creative writing, which was not um, everywhere. I know it's even less in the UK, but not every college in America has that. So that was one criteria. And the other one was that I didn't want it to have fraternities, which are like party houses, basically, that a lot of the universities in the US have. And I knew being a very shy person that fraternities weren't like a good match for my um skill set. And so I I studied creative writing as well as English literature in college. And then actually I thought I would go into publishing though. I thought that I would continue I was still so shy and I didn't think I was that good. I just thought I loved it. And so I thought I would go into publishing and write on the side kind of for myself and then maybe someday I would be able to publish a short story or something like that. Um but I actually got sick in my senior year of college with um, Epstein-Barr is the name of the virus, but it's like mononucleosis or glandular fever kind of a thing. Right. So I ended up being like it wipes out your immune system. So it took me an extra year to finish college. And I have been healthy my whole life up until then and my whole life after then. But it really like it was like getting hit by a bus, basically. And I had very little energy. And I went back to college for my senior year, but I took a half load of classes. And every day I... I would have to prioritize like where I wanted to put this pocket of energy I had because I didn't have much. And so it was basically like what's meaningful to me. And it was writing and my boyfriend. And so like <laughs> that was like, and, and in that year, I had a sense of my own mortality and how life can change on a dime in a way that 20 year olds don't normally get. And in that year, I was like, oh, I'm going to try to do this because this is what I love to do. And I don't know what's going to happen next in my life. And if I fail, I want it to be my failure and not just a sort of generic trying to please my parents' failure. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was the moment where I decided to really start telling people. And to I went to graduate school at New York University for fiction writing, and that's where I started writing. That's where I wrote my first novel. Um, the one that was rejected by 80 agents. Right. So yeah, we'll we'll get to that bit and we definitely will. But I'm interested in what you just said about writing and loving it, but not thinking you were very good and how that feels when you're doing it. I mean, maybe it feels different now, but back then, were you reading back things you'd written and going, going gosh, I loved writing that, but ooh, it's not good. Or were you looking on things and thinking, well, that bit's okay. Or I think, well, I think when you're young or new to any kind of an art form, I think that's actually the moment where talent is the most apparent because nobody knows what they're doing. So if you're in a classroom or a workshop with, you know, 10, 20 year olds, none of us have enough writing experience at that point to sort of master any kind of craft. We don't have enough, we don't have the 10,000 hours. We don't have the depth of, you know, just practice and experience that comes with time. 
So you see flashes, you will see flashes of brilliance or just natural uh, ability that comes that come to the surface. And at that point, you're just like, oh my God, well, that person has it and I don't. And I, I, I felt that way in, in, high, in college and in graduate school, where there were definitely students who were more talented than me, where in a first draft, they could make things happen that didn't happen for me until like the seventh draft. But the thing is, they didn't write a seventh, and I would. That's how it felt initially, where I was like, it was very stark. It was very clear. It wasn't really me feeling badly about myself. I feel like it was realistic. You know, some people have more flair and like immediate, like off the page sort of success with language, whereas mine really was, in graduate school actually, was where it really became stark to me, where I would look around the room and there were really talented students who were handing in work that they had written in college um, because they were smoking pot and hanging out and didn't, you know, like weren't doing new work to hand in. And I was like, well, I'm not as talented in, as them, but I know how to work hard. Like I'm, I come from like really, my parents are both professionals. I, mean, I don't come from artists. So I know how to show up on time. I know how to work hard. And I was like, I can do that. And then I get to do this thing that I love and I'm bringing something to it that is going to take me where it's going to take me. So that's where it really became a practice and where I sort of really became, began to accrue the hours that I think anyone needs to sort of get deeper and deeper in their own work. Mm. Okay, so you, you started writing your novel in graduate school. And so how long did it take you to write that first manuscript? Yeah, it took two, two and a half years. I think I finished it shortly after we graduated from graduate school. And there were students in my program who had immediate success, who like sold novels for a lot of money. So like there was that, that was where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm now on the playing field and this will now be my career. So sending it out and having it rejected by 80 agents was, was just like, well, it was like, like a reality check. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what was it about? Um, it was about a, I think it was called Ghost Girl, and it was about a, a girl in, who was suffering from anorexia and her in an unhappy family and, um, and how sort of the, the family mechanisms changed around her as she got sicker. And I think now that book is probably terrible. And I remember at the time thinking that I didn't think it was great, but I thought there were good, I thought there were very good scenes in it. Like I remember writing a scene where the girl was running stadium steps, you know, like in a football stadium or whatever for exercise. And so I remember being like, I'm very happy with like three things that happened in the book. But I, but I, I really do think that for me, certainly, there's a saying that writing a short story is like swimming across a lake, you know, like you can see the other side of the lake, you're familiar with lakes, you know how to swim. I think I can swim across the lake, there's a beginning, a middle and an end. And you can, so you can write a short story, but writing a novel is like swimming across the ocean. And nobody knows how to swim across the ocean unless you, you know, put a lot of research time, effort, try, figure out what equipment you need, you know, talk to people, read books, blah, blah, blah. So I really had to write a novel in order to figure out how to write a novel. Because just trying to write something that's like 350 pages itself and like pulling any kind of a story arc through that is very challenging. When the 80 rejections came, <laughs> um, that made sense to me. Like that wasn't a crushing blow. The next one was a crushing blow. How long did it take for those 80 to come in? How long was that process? Probably like six months. 
probably about six months. I did it in waves. I didn't send it out to AD agents initially. I think I did it like in batches of 10, basically. Probably six to 10 months, because usually you don't hear back for like three months or something like that, just because of the piles and, you know, the slush piles that these agents are going through. And a few of them had scribbled like a, uh, like normally they're form letters, um, I guess now form emails. But a few of them had like scribbled in the margin, like something that they liked about the book. And that was like encouraging, you know, that uh, and a, 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 several of them said that anorexia at the time was very like in the news. And so that they felt like that was like a, a mark against the book, kind of like it, like that wave. had. So like that was an introduction too, where like you could actually yeah. write about a subject that had passed its moment, even though I wasn't you know, trying to respond to a moment or anything like that. Mm. Um, so that was like a relevant piece too, which wasn't something that I would, you know, make a different decision about in the future. I still feel like you have to write the book that you need to write. I'm not someone who obviously who would be like writing about dragons because dragons are hot, you know, like <laughs> there's various choices <laughs> that you can make as a writer. Um, but that was like an interesting data point to get back as well, that that was some of them liked the book, but felt that that yeah. made it not marketable were you at that point devastated because I mean it sounds like you you already knew on some level that that wasn't the one maybe I was more like embarrassed I think because <laughs> that was probably the first that was the first time like that my parents I mean obviously they knew I went to graduate school for fiction writing but that was the first time that I had sort of publicly put my work out there because I really wasn't a short story writer. So I I published one short story during college, like in the university magazine. But other than that, I had not been published at all. So, and I kept telling, you know, I was like, I'm a novelist. I'm not a, you know, whatever. So this was the first time that I had a novel and I sent yeah. it out and then it was, just, you know, sort of colossally unsuccessful. So it was more like, it was more embarrassment than anything else, but I wasn't really completely knocked over. Cause I, I also was like, I don't think it was great. So like, let me try again. And so then you did try again and you set about writing another one and how, how did that feel to write? And what was that one about? Um, that one, I felt better writing that one. Like I do feel like I got sea legs kind of from doing the first one. So this one, I was like, okay, I, I, I know where I am in doing this process so I can sort of begin to hunker down in it and like make it work better as opposed to just doing it. I do think that often like the goal, if you want to be a writer from when you're a child is or a young person, it's like, I just want to publish a book. And then obviously I hadn't reached that stage yet, but then, then you get to the point where you're like, I want to publish a good book, you know, like, but you can't really have both those aspirations to begin with because like just publishing is so, you know, such a mountain to climb. It's just once you're on top of that mountain, you're like, I want to be proud of the books that I'm publishing. Um, so the second one was the first time that I felt like I was improving inside of the form. Um, and this one was about a um, a girl whose stepsister has disappeared. And she, and nobody, they don't know what happened. And she goes out on the road with her mother, who she has a difficult relationship with, to try and find this girl. And this book, I think, was better. Like... <laughs> It was good. Um, yeah. And, and this book, it took like two and a half years probably to write as well mm. as working as a personal assistant, you know, full time while I did it. And then I sent it out and I had three agents that wanted to represent me. So I was feeling very pleased. So I got, I met with all three of them and chose the one that I felt like, you know, was the best representative for me and the best agent. And, and then she sent it out and it didn't sell. 
there was one editor, I think, that wanted to buy it. And then her boss went on maternity leave, so she couldn't get the final, like, go ahead to bid on it. That just must have been... I mean, how how long, first of all, how long had you been waiting on that submission before you got, how long was it, for example, before that uh, editor expressed interest? Did you have a lot of rejections in the interim? Were you waiting a long time? It wasn't that long, as I recall. I think, because I think, I think my agent sent out like three waves of, submitted it in three waves. So like send it out to like eight editors and then eight editors and eight editors. And it was over like a two month period because they're pretty good about the editors are pretty good in responding to the agents within a, a time frame. So it probably took like two months and then I knew it wasn't going to be sold. And that, that, that was, was Yeah. Cause yes. I've had, as you know, I've had one book, I've just written my first book and, and um, I don't think it's going to be published. And that was pretty demoralizing. And I just, I mean, two, having spent well a total of I guess between four and five years must have been devastating how did you feel how did you move on that one was devastating so I was like 28 or something like that at that point I think so all I had been working on or trying to do you know I I had a job but it was like a job it was it wasn't you know what I love to do it just worked very well as like a way to make a living while I did this but I hadn't like invested in trying to like have a career, you know, a, a career on the side or something that I wanted to do long term. And at that point, I was just like, oh, I this isn't going to work. Like, I'm not good enough to be a writer. And so I got really I got very depressed. Um, my father was sending me brochures for law schools in the mail. I, I heard you say that in another interview and I heard I, I felt like you were passing it off as a joke, but it must have been. <laughs> It must have been really crushing, actually, to think well, yeah, I've invested yeah. all this time and then... Well, my, and my parents were very pragmatic and not artists, as I said. My dad is a lawyer and a banker and my mother is a business consultant. <laughs> and so they were just like, all right, you know, like this is data and you need to respond to the data. And the data is that <laughs> you need to do something else. So my father also paid for me to take some very expensive, like um, career, like where you, where a test that you take to figure out what career you should have so that at the end they can be like, you're perfectly suited for X. Cause he was like, you know, you're a blank slate at this point. Like, what are we, what are you going to do? You're 28 or whatever. Like there's time to go to law school. There's time to you know <laughs> go to med school, whatever, you know, real life thing you're going to do. And I, I remember taking this day long test in some office and it's funny cause I was, I was always like, I answered all the questions thinking I, what, I, you know, they'd be like, what do you, do you love to do one monotonous task all day long? And I would be like, yes. Although <laughs> that signs you up to be like a factory worker. <laughs> like, so at the end, <laughs> this very bizarre result where they were like, um, you should be a park ranger. Like, because <laughs> <laughs> I think I just like mystified the whole system. And I wasn't trying to like, I was trying to answer it like truthfully because I was like open to the idea that maybe there is some other career that I hadn't thought of yet. And, and the, the, the thing was, it did. It was very demoralizing. It was embarrassing. It was like, it was foundation rocking because this is what I had wanted to do my entire life, basically. And I hadn't, I didn't have a plan B. Um, and what I found, I couldn't figure out how to get out of this hole that I basically was in. And I started writing again because it made me feel better. So I really just started writing sort of not secretly because nobody was asking. It wasn't like, it wasn't like people were like, are you writing? Because nobody really, you know, cared or, you know, certainly wanted me to write. But I started writing again, I think in the evenings 
just because it, it made me feel better inside my body and like it turned my brain on and I felt less depressed. So I started, I ended up starting another book purely to make myself feel better. And that actually, that was the biggest revelation of my writing life, certainly, because at that point I was like, it was like a light bulb th moment where I was like, oh, I'm going to keep doing this. This is part of who I am. And I cannot be like a mentally healthy, functional human or be myself if I'm not writing. So I'm going to keep writing, even if I never get published, I'm just going to do it to be me. And that took this enormous weight off because at that point I assumed that I would not be published, but I didn't have to question it anymore. Like I just, I was a writer because if I'm not a writer, then I'm going to be like lying on my bed face down, <laughs> like you know, being depressed all the time. And that's, that's not, that's no life. Mm -hmm. So um, that was like a real turning point. So I, I sort of, and I also, then I wrote that third novel thinking, well, no one's going to read this. So I kind of based it on my mother's large Irish Catholic family and like some family secrets and things like that, that had always fascinated me. No I, I've read Within Arms Reach and I really enjoyed it. And I wanted to ask you actually, if um, I, I feel like in that and Dear Edward, which I've also read, you really seem to have a, a strong interest in, well, in family, but also different perspectives. In Within Arms Reach, you obviously have these six family members revolving around each other. And then in Dear Edward, you have one timeline which tracks various people on the plane before it goes down. And I wondered if that was something that you had honed in your earlier manuscripts, because it's, it's quite a technique uh, doing multiple perspective well. And I wondered if you'd attempted that in your earlier manuscripts and, and sort of yeah practiced it before you got to Within Arms Reach. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't in the first one. And the second one had two points of view, the mother and the daughter. So to some extent, yes. But Within Arms Reach was the first time that I really explored that or felt capable of exploring it. And that that's probably like my favorite, one of my favorite parts of writing. I love going into different people's heads. I went into like everyone's heads in Dear Edward initially in the first drafts. Like, And my two friends who are writers who read my work first were like, you got to pull back. Like you can go into everyone on the plane, but like on the ground, it has to be just Edward. And they were right. Like I was going into his aunt and uncle's heads and Shay, the next door neighbor, and it was too much. Like it was too many voices. So like my inclination is like, I, I, it's very fun for me to like go into Crispin Cox on the plane and dear Edward, who's an octogenarian billionaire, like, you know, like it's just fun. Yeah. So that comes, e I would say that actually comes easily to me. Um, I used to, I was a personal assistant at one point for a self-help writer and I kind of ghost wrote, like not officially, but ghost wrote, um, some of her like minor work and I could do her voice really well. Like I just, I can do people's voices, not, um, you know, on the page. And that's a lot of fun for me. And I also think it's really interesting that if you have three siblings who went through the same event, they all will give you a completely different rendition of it, like every time. Mm. Do you think that was anything that you did come to Within Arm's Reach with, obviously the revelation that writing was for you and not for the kind of end product, but in terms of the actual writing technique, was there stuff that you brought to that book that you think you might not have had otherwise with those other manuscripts behind you? Yes, definitely. I definitely got better with each book. So I'd be horrified if my first novel that I wrote was out in the world. I mean, it wouldn't, it would be, <laughs> if, if it had come out, it would be gone by now. <laughs> like it would have disappeared and not be in print and all that kind of stuff. So I feel very grateful that because each book is better, 
that by the time the first one came out, it was my third. Like I, I don't, I'm definitely like a slow developer and a slow burn in like every single way possible. I have no sharp retorts. I'm like not quick on my feet. Um, but if you leave me alone to rewrite something for like eight hours a day for years, I can do a good job because I, I just like, I like to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And with each book, it's I've been able to go deeper and deeper and deeper because of the repetition and the hours and the like the practice of it. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I I guess the multiple points of view is a good example where I wouldn't have felt comp- uh, competent enough to do that in the earlier books. And I also was able because I knew how to write a it really was having written two by the time I went to the third I didn't have to think so much about like I'm one act in and what has to, you know, where do the stakes need to be now to get to the, where you'd have to be at like 50% ish of a book. Like that had become more naturally, you know, appeared for me so I could focus on other elements of it. But I think that's true every time. But I also know there are like people who come out of the gates at 23 and write a brilliant novel. But I know that I like, I'm just like slow and deep as opposed to quick and amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So when, so how old were you when you finally got published? Um, and, And also what was the process of submitting within arm's reach? Because you'd have this revelation that writing was for you, but you must still have hoped desperately that this one would actually get published when it went in. Yeah. I did for sure. Th- this one was strange too, because I mean, of course I was hopeful, but I also was like, who know, you know, like who knows, but I mean, my agent was like the last one she was like, and she, um, she passed away. So she's no longer my agent, but she was older and had a long career in publishing. She had run a publishing house and then become an agent and she was in her sixties and she was like, the last one should have sold. Like it was good. And so I trusted her, like I knew she knew what she was talking about. And she, you know, she was an agent for like um, Khaled Husseini, who wrote uh, The Kite mm-hmm. Runner. And she had a number of prominent authors that she was the agent for. So I was like, you know, I'm not entirely running on my own, you know, narcissism or whatever. Like she was like, you know, that one should have gone, you know, the weird things happen. I, you know, it's very rare. I don't, you know, she hadn't had a lot of experiences like that. And she was like, this one's good. I think it's going to sell. So I was like, okay, you know, so that gave me some confidence. Um, But that one was, and she also, it was interesting. She was very old school. And I, in for her, I was very young when I signed with her, so to speak. And so she had, she wouldn't tell me anything. Like she was very secretive. (laughs) (laughs) And that was her process. She, like, she had a belief system that like, I think like the less the author knew about what was going on for selling their book, the better, because she must have had experiences where authors just drove her insane. So a lot of it was like behind a curtain, which I didn't like, and I think would have become an issue later in my career. But I think she would have been responsive to that too. But I was so young to her that she was just like, kiddo, you don't know anything and you're not going to be helpful <laughs> to this process or whatever. So she sent it out in the US, obviously, and nobody took it. And um, and for some reason, she had she worked obviously with a UK agent as well, and he felt like he would have success in the UK. So I think this is slightly unusual. So he sent it out kind of concurrently in the UK, and it had a lot more interest in the UK, and so it got bought first in in the UK by Lenny Goodings, who ran Virago. I, I'm always forgetting. She's a, a great publisher in the UK. And so it sold in the UK before it sold in the US, which is very strange. But then the sale in the UK 
meant, um, I think she sent it out in January. It sold in February in the UK, like early February in the UK. And then by the end of February, it had sold in the US too, because the fact that it had been bought in the UK sort of made the, the editors in the US pay more attention. Um, and so it got bought by Crown Publishing um, in the US. So the order of it was kind of strange. And the fact that it had been rejected a lot in the US first, I was kind of like, oh, we're on this again. It's just not going to sell. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so what did you do when it sold? Did you have a massive celebration? Did it feel like something had changed? Like you could say, this is now my profession or was it more? Yeah, it was very, it was very exciting. Like it was very validating. I think I probably which is totally common. I, I think I felt like, I think I felt like, oh, my life is going to change massively. Like I'm a writer now and it, your life doesn't change massively normally when you sell a book, but like my, like my parents were thrilled. They had a book party for me, like when it sold, you know, with all their friends <laughs> to be like, finally answer the book. I think I was 31 at that point. And so like they, they had lost hope and, um, this was very validating, you know, for them. And that was really nice, you know, like to not have everyone looking at me just being like, what is she doing? So yeah, that did change things in that way. Yeah, I was, you know, it was, it was very gratifying. Do you think that then changed the way you wrote the next book, an expectation that it would sell? Mm. Well, yes. Uh, yes, I guess so. I don't know. I, in my experience, every book is completely different from the other one, like the experience of writing it. Like I'll think, I think so at that point, Within Arms Reach took three years, the two books before that took two to three years. And I made enough money um, from the sale of Within Arms Reach that I was like, oh, I can, I can support myself like frugally for like two to three years on this money. I was, I was single, I didn't have children at the time. And I was working as a personal assistant and I met my husband through that job and we were getting married. And so I quit my personal assistant job um, on really great terms and all that kind of stuff. I had been with them for eight years. And, um, and, then, and then that book took seven years to write. So I had budgeted and I, cause I was like, well, this is great. Like it's always taking me two to three years and I'm going to be able to do it full time. Like I'm, I won't have a full-time job. I'd probably write this thing in like eight months, you know, like, um, and then the book just, was very challenging and changed like four times while I was writing it. And a real, a real person, historical figure, a writer named Flannery O'Connor, who's a famous short story writer in the U.S. She's really not known that much um, abroad, but she's a major short story writer. She showed up in the novel and about a year into my writing it, and I was horrified. Um, I had no desire to write historical fiction. I felt like writing a good novel is challenging enough without having to like faithfully represent a real person much in time period and chronology and all that kind of stuff that had never been something that I had wanted to do. I'm from New Jersey, which is in the North of the United States. And there's like an unwritten code that you don't, and Flannery O'Connor is from Georgia. She's a Southern literary icon. And if you're from the North, you don't write about Southern literary icons. Like you have to be from the <laughs> South to write about Flannery O'Connor <laughs> to have her be a character in your novel. So I was like, I was really horrified and I fought it. And, and then I had to do, and then I had to do a lot of, once I realized she wasn't leaving and there was a reason for her to be there, I then had to do a lot of research. And, and then I was like, this book has to be good because Flannery O'Connor's in it. And 
she's a very intimidating, she's dead, but she's a very intimidating figure. And I was like, I'm not going to disrespect this woman, this incredible writer by writing a crappy novel that she's in. So <laughs> even like for myself, that kind of like raised the bar of what I needed it to be because she was in it. So it took me seven years because, and then I had two children <laughs> during wow. writing that. And I kept thinking, oh, I'm going to finish it before this first baby's born. And then I was like, well, I'm definitely finishing it before the second baby's born. And neither was the case. So there was a various like issues inside of the process. Mm, wow. What, what an achievement. <laughs> then finish it. I guess, yes. I've heard you say before that you have low expectations generally. Is that still the case? Has that always been the case? Yeah, that's. A, well, I think that that is from my earlier failures um, and the fact that I sort of after the second novel didn't sell in teaching writing classes. And if you hear writers talk, they all, they all say like, you really should pay attention to the process because the result, the, like the goal, the publishing is never going to be what you want it to be. Like, even if you are, um, even if your book is like, and I'm not talking about my book, but an outrageous bestseller, like on the list for like two years straight and sells a million copies like you're going to lose friends. Like people are going to be weird with you. You're going to be like inundated with emails and requests and like crazy people. And, you know, like even if like that incredible, like Oprah level dream is achieved, it has a ton of like complications and stressors built into that. And that's, you know, like I've seen people go through that. I've seen people go through everything um, from knowing writers and teaching and all that kind of stuff. So like, you really do have to love, you have to be there for the work because that's your life. Like that's the, the pu actual publication is, you know, this tiny percentage. Um, and also I love having low expectations because it's not being pessimistic. It's not like I'm like, no one's going to like this book. It's crappy. What am I doing? You know, everything's going to be terrible. It's not that at all. It's like, I'm writing the book like for me. I want to love the process. I want to love my work. I want to love my life. And, and then I have no control over anything else. Like I really, it, and so I assume that nobody's going to read this book. I assume it's not going to sell. I assume not another person is going to read Dear Edward after today. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't, and then when people reach out and say nice things, it's such a pleasant surprise. Well, and I, 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 no, and I, I didn't think Dear Edward was going to sell because, um, I mean, you talk about fa failures. So the first, Within Arms Reach and A Good Hard Look, were both like critically um, praised. Like they got good reviews, but they really didn't sell very many copies at all. They did not sell well by any metric. Uh, so not very many people read them. So when I was writing Dear Edward, which took me eight years, so... The, a Good Hard Look took me seven years and then Dear Edward took eight years. But the whole time I was writing Dear Edward, I really, and I think realistically thought this might not sell at all because at that point I was a mid-list writer, which is what they call a middle-aged <laughs> writer who who has published a few books that are unsuccessful. Um, and so what publishing gets excited about normally is the hot new talent. So like they're very into... 20 somethings who have written a great book because that's like they've arrived on the scene and it's marketing gold, et cetera. And, uh, and then they're obviously into like career bestsellers, you know, people who sell a lot of books consistently. And I was not 
any of those things at all. They're not generally not excited about middle-aged writers who have published several books that have not done well. Um, so like, even like I have some friends who are agents and they were just like, well, maybe you'll get what you got for your last book. You know, like, so while I was writing it, I really was just like, I'm writing the book that I want to write that I feel like I need to write. And I'm loving writing it. Writing Dear Edward was the most joyful writing experience of my life. Writing A Good Hard Look right before it was so hard. And when I finished it, my husband who, who had lived with me for the whole course of writing that book, he was like, I think you should do the next one differently because if this is a labor of love, like that was terrible. Like you were in despair for a lot of that book. Why would you do it that way again? And so he was like, I suggest that you, whatever your next book is, I suggest you do it differently. And he challenged me to, um, for the first year of whatever the next project was that I don't, didn't let myself write what I call pretty sentences. Um, because I like nothing better than writing a scene and having a character show up and say something I didn't expect them to say. And then something else happens and, you know, like, and then like the flow of the language and the, you know, going for some kind of like lyricism, that's my happy place. But I cannot think analytically um, at all in that place. It's like the, uh, that part of my brain is inaccessible. So he suggested I spend the first year just thinking about the new book, taking notes and doing research. Um, but I was not allowed to write. And uh, and then also during that year, reading outside of my normal zones of reading. And um, I was very annoyed at him for that suggestion. And, uh, <laughs> and it was really hard, but it was so smart. Um, so that's what I did for Dear Edward. Like I became obsessed with a plane crash that really happened. And then I spent a year doing research, taking notes and thinking. And when I, I think that's part of why the writing of the book was just joyful. Um, I think because I walked in like 50% prepared where I normally walk in 0% prepared. And so mm -hmm. I was, when I was able to write the pretty sentences, I was so grateful that I was able to write them because I, you know, it was like going on a diet or something and then you get to eat cake. Like this cake is the most amazing <laughs> cake I've ever eaten in my life. You know, like this was this, I was so appreciative in my bones of the writing, which I had been doing my whole life and like having to take a break like that and not being allowed to do it in a way, but still being engaged with like a project was really revelatory for me. I don't even know if I've answered your question, but that's yeah. that changed yeah. that changed the process for Dear Edward and and not thinking it was going to sell. I was just like, I'm just happy eating this cake. Like, and I wanna, you know, do the best job that I can at it. And then if it doesn't sell at the end, that's okay. And then, and then, of course, it went to auction. <laughs> and then, it went, yeah, and then it had a bidding war. And I was like, this is crazy. And then that felt like that felt it, at that point, then that just felt really interesting to me where I was like, oh, I get to play the role of a writer who everybody wants to publish. Like, I never thought I would play this role. And it's so interesting to be like going and meeting all these editors and having them try to get me and things like that. <laughs> like people were sending like duffel bags filled with uh, letters and and stuffed animals and things to me to editors were <clears throat> it was so interesting and so so gratifying so but I've been mean, wow. when that happened I was just like I was able to really appreciate it all because I had expected nothing <laughs> you mm, know yeah. yeah wow I wanted to ask you about your earlier manuscript because they must seem very far behind you now in a way but I wonder whether you ever think about them of the ones that didn't make it and of the characters and the stories in them because 
you know, you lived with them for such a long time. I, I spoke to one author for this podcast who had actually put some characters from a novel that didn't make it into another novel that no, did, um, because it's difficult to put characters in a drawer and say goodbye to them. Yeah, well, I have <clears throat> sort of mixed feelings or thoughts about it. The first book, <clears throat> excuse me, I just thought was so terrible. I think it's so terrible. <laughs> like, I really just think of it as an exercise that I did, and I'm so grateful that no one read it. Um, and I'm grateful to it because I needed to write it to get to the next book. So no, I think of, I really think of it as like, you know, graduate school, like that writing that book was graduate school, as opposed to anything that I would pull into the future in any way. The second book I read once I, <clears throat> once I sold Within Arm's Reach and I was like, what am I going to do next? I was like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll reread that, that novel that didn't sell and maybe I can rework it somehow <clears throat> and in like six months and sell another book. Like that would be awesome. And I've already done the work and, you know, people liked it and whatnot. And so I read it and it was a really interesting experience because it had been like three or four years, I guess, or something like that since I had read it um, before. And I thought it was good. Like I, I, I was reading it like clinically being like, yeah, this works, this is good. Um, but I had no emotional attachment to it anymore. Like it was like, it wasn't mine. And I couldn't imagine like breaking into it and doing something inside of it. It didn't feel like I wasn't there anymore um, emotionally or with my interests or in the development of myself as a writer. It, it felt like it was not something that I could use. And that was like, I, I really had thought that this would be great if I could just rework this because I liked it anyway. And and I do feel like that is the same going forward. Like I, I when I think about Within Arms Reach or a good hard look, I, I think, well, I don't feel like they're mine anymore in a way. Um, I feel like they were the 32 year old me's, you know, book. And I don't, and I, and I'm proud of it. And I'm glad the 32 year old me wrote it, but I, I don't have, um, I don't feel like it's, it's not alive in me any, in me and in any way. I feel more like a reader than I do like a writer of them, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Some of your characters talk about memory um, in quite an interesting way. I mean, Edward obviously tries to not think about his family who've died, um, but also Kelly in With An Arm's Reach says that memory brings her pain. And I wondered when you're, if the memory of your own rejections and setbacks in publishing are something that you think about whether they remain painful or whether you can sort of whether they serve you in some way still that's interesting i wrote an essay that was in the new york times shortly after dear edward came out and it was about this practice that i have <clears throat> that i think relates to your question where i read a novel when I was 14 by L.M. Montgomery. She wrote Anne of Green Gables, which is a very famous series, but she also read another series called Emily of New Moon. And I was really into, I read everything and I was really into her books when I was 14 and I was reading Emily of New Moon. And in Emily of New Moon, Emily, who was also 14, wrote a letter to herself 10 years later. So like she said, this is, you know, dear me at 24, this is who I am at 14. This is who I hope I am when I'm 24. Da, da, da. And I was like, oh, what a great idea. And so I've been doing that ever since I was 14. So I wrote a letter to myself at 24, 34, 44. And now I'm waiting to open. I've written one to myself at 54. Um, that will be the next one that I open. 
And so I wrote this essay in the New York Times uh, that people can look up online if they want and about this practice and how the one that I wrote when I was like 24, I feel so badly for that girl because I had these very specific aspirations for like publishing the book that I was working on right then, marrying this boy that I was, I was dating, like controlling my life in a way, which is of course what we do. We have hopes and dreams and, and goals and like plans. And none of those things happened. So there was this like interesting 10 year letter period where like, by the time I wrote the 30, the four, the 34 year old letter, I looked back on that girl and was just like, that was a lot of pain. I went through a lot of pain because I had these very strong um, aspirations for myself and very high standards. And I put a lot of weight in it. And I felt like if I was going to be a serious person and a serious writer, like these goals needed to be met or I would have failed. And by those accounts, I failed repeatedly in my 20s. And now, inevitably, I'm grateful for those failures. A, I do think failure is more interesting, but also you ha you have to respond to those failures. And it's in, in responding to those failures that you figure out who you are and who you want to be. Like, do you want that failure to beat you or do you want to keep going? Do you want to get up again or do you want to stay lying down? And I got to make those choices and I made them. And it's so interesting aging, you know, because you're playing the long game and you have a longer history. and when Dear Edward was successful, um, and even just when Dear Edward was, was finished and I was very proud of it, like I felt like I'd done what I wanted to do, even though my editor was amazing and, and the editing process made it better. Um, I felt really proud of myself. And that's not a public thing at all. Like, I don't know, I'm not even telling my family that I feel really proud of myself, but like, I got up all those times and I spent all those years writing inside, like in quiet with nobody caring or knowing or you know being invested in any way but like investing in myself and my life and like what i wanted to do and how i wanted to spend my days and and knowing because of the failures that like filling my own self up with the work that i wanted to do and the standard that i wanted to hit with it was so worth it and then to do it for long enough that you actually get external success is is very moving and gratifying so I'm glad I could have given up when I was, you know, 28 or 30 um, and nobody would have thought ill of me for doing so, but I'm so glad I didn't. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you do have a chance to leave a review or rating, I'd really appreciate it. You can do that in your podcast app and it really helps people find the podcast. Plus, it just makes me feel good, to be honest. Guests still to come on the podcast include Alex Wheatle, Michelle Roberts and Douglas Stewart. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Francesca Steele with an E at the end. So do pop along and say hello. Um, hope to see you there. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.